0: Excellent singing, church. You may have a seat. And while you're grabbing your seat, also grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. It's so sweet when you can actually um, sing the sermon. And I feel like we had an opportunity to do that this morning, to be able to sing the truth that's going to come from the text of the word. And so I'm always grateful for an opportunity to gather and to sing uh, with the saints. Thankful for Jonathan and Becky and the rest of our music ministry and their faithfulness to bring us music every week so we can worship our God together. Well, Merrill Matthews wrote an article in The Hill entitled, We Want World Peace... So why is it so elusive? And he stated that according to famed and prolific historians, Will and Ariel Durant, over the past three and a half millennia, there has been at least one war in the last 92% of all of those years. Maybe I said that too quick, but I'll just say it my way. That's a lot of war. The Durants write in their book, The Lessons of History, war is one of the constants of history and has not diminished with civilization or democracy. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 of those years have seen no war. Now they wrote that back in 1968, and so... When we begin to apply some math and add 54 more years, have we spent the last 54 years in peace? And the answer to that, obviously, is no. Distinguished Professor Emeritus, maybe you are familiar with Dr. John Arquilla from the Navy Postgraduate School. He weighed in on the issue about a decade ago in foreign policy, and in 2012, he concluded with these words, the 44 years since the Durants made that observation have not added a single year of peace to that meager total. That means 92% of the past three and a half millennia have been filled with war. Now, interestingly, if you do the math, the Durants determined to start their tally the same year of the exodus from Egypt. We have about 5,000 years of recorded history But it's fascinating that they chose the exodus and Israel's journey into the promised land as their starting point. Now, besides that point, you say, well, what do we learn from articles like these and many others that have been published? We learn that peace is elusive. We learn that war is inevitable. You take any individual on the street and you ask them if there is one thing you could change in the world, one of their top answers is probably that the world would have peace. I wish for world peace. Even basketball players change their name to world peace. Sure, our country and our world do experience different levels of peace, but it's never perpetual. And despite the the promises that come from NATO or the signings of peace treaties, we all know that the world can never, ever offer peace lasting peace the same is true for us personally sometimes we're full of peace right now it might be a season of peace for you but at other times we feel like we can just barely hang on to the tiny piece of peace that we have but listen god's desire for you is that you not only know peace but that you enjoy the peace that he's provided and that you enjoy it every day. And so when war breaks out like it has in the past couple years, when the stock market crashes, when the inflation rate rises, when sickness comes, when suffering comes, the world panics, but the Christian is to be at peace. You and I No doubt, we're not immune to the troubles of the world, but the troubles of the world should never trouble our peace. And I would argue that the only people who can truly exemplify lasting peace is the Christian. This is why when we walk around with worry, we actually hinder our testimony. When people see us all frantic and fearful, terrified at what's going on in the world, It actually diminishes our witness. But how many times have you heard a testimony, you've seen someone, when everything is chaotic and going crazy, when there's all kinds of turmoil, sickness, disease, whatever it may be, and you see a Christian, and they're at perfect peace. In fact, some of you are sitting here today, because you were going through a frantic time, or you had a friend that was going through a frantic time, and you saw them so composed, so calm, so content, and you recognize what do they have that I do not possess? And some of you have come to Christ because of that testimony. Well, the last time that we were together in Philippians, we looked at the first part of verse 6, where Paul gives the Philippians yet another exhortation to shore up their spiritual stability. You see, in order for us to be the kind of believers that God has called us to be, the kind of of people that stand firm and stand united to the threats outside as well as the threats inside, we have to obey certain commands. And Paul lists them off here when there's squabbles and fights that break out among the body, we need to quickly return to the attitude of humility and preferring one another over ourselves. It is truly an impossibility for us to be sinfully at odds with one another when we are regarding one another as more important than ourselves. And so Paul says to do that very thing in chapter 2, But at the beginning of chapter 4, he identifies these two women and saying, you're at odds with one another because you are not thinking of one another's best interest. And so Paul pursues our joy in the Lord. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, always I say rejoice. And then he says, you're to be guided by a gentle and yielding spirit. Well, now Paul adds to these exhortations, to being unified and to rejoicing and to being gentle to not be anxious about anything. And here in our text, we learn that we are to fight all forms of anxiety and we're to do that by thankful prayer. Let's read in the scriptures, Philippians 4, verses six through seven. Here's God's word to us. Paul writes this, "'Be anxious for nothing, "'but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving.'" Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. O God, we are dependent on you. We are dependent on the Spirit to illumine the Word in our hearts and minds so that we would not only understand, but we would enjoy the truth, embrace the truth, be obedient to the truth. Live out the truth. God, would you do that work with us right now, right here? We pray for your namesake. Amen. Well, our main idea, if you're taking notes, um, comes from this statement. In Philippians 4, 6 through 7, Paul provides us with the prescription for anxiety and the pathway to peace. The prescription for anxiety and the path- pathway to peace. And we've outlined it fairly simple. We have two major headings. The first is that prayer can replace panic. Prayer replaces panic. And so we'll see that in verse 6 as we look at praying in every situation, praying every kind of prayer, praying with thanksgiving, and praying in faith. And then the second major heading we'll look at is that prayer can produce peace. In verse 7, prayer can produce peace. And we'll see that the peace of God is superior to human reasoning, that it guards our emotions and our thoughts, and that this peace can only be found in Christ Jesus. So that's where we're going. Let's jump in right to heading number one, prayer can replace panic there in verse six. Once again, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul begins by telling us that we are to pray in every situation. Now, notice that the prescription for anxiety is not in the prohibition. It's not just don't be anxious. The solution comes after the strong contrast. He uses that word but. But in everything by prayer. You see, placing all of our problems at the feet of God in prayer is the place to start. And just like the prohibition was exhaustive, be anxious for nothing, so the prescription is exhaustive. In everything, pray. Now, everything means everything. There's nothing in life that's outside the reach of prayer. If it concerns you, it concerns God. So pray in every trial. Pray in every temptation, When you're worried, pray. When you feel agitated, pray. When you're scared, pray. When you're burdened, pray. When you're sorrowful, pray. Whatever it is that might be tempting you toward sinful anxiety, whether it's something that's real and immediate or it's something that's even imagined, God's Word is telling us that we are to turn all of our problems into prayer. And listen, praying for everything shouldn't just be limited to trials and temptations, but it should also include your triumphs. We don't want to be numbered among those who only pray when times are tough. If you only take time to talk to God when you're in trouble, you've waited too long, Christian. One way to make less 911 prayer calls is just to be in constant communication with the Lord throughout the day to have the steady stream of communication with God, that's going to prevent us from only going to him when crisis hits. And that's why Paul commands us to pray in every situation. So we don't just pray when we're in panic mode, because it's easy to pray then. Now the verse says, in everything, whether you're panicked or whether there's peace, whether you're in public or private, we're to pray at all times, in all places, and in all situations. But notice also that Paul says here that there's, Three different expressions that communicate this ongoing communication and communion with God. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so heading number two here, prayer needs to happen in every kind of prayer. The first word he uses there is the word prosuke, which is just a general term for communication with God. That word is actually translated worship or devotion. And so when you begin to worry, you begin to fear, and you begin to doubt, you replace the worry with worship. When you're burdened in your heart, and you will be burdened, that's the time to bow the knee to your heart in worship. The second word that he uses here is petition. Familiar word, or supplication, your translation might say. This word refers to the desperate cry for help arising from a need. You see, if you're lacking something, you're to pour out your heart to God, and you're to petition Him for a specific need. Now, there are times, I think, where we can pray in generalities, but we don't want all our prayer to be just general prayers. God actually delights when we're giving specific petitions, in fact, the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 11 illustrates this. Jesus says, suppose one of you had a friend. And he goes to him at midnight and says to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, do not bother me. The door has already been shut and my children and I are in bed. I cannot give, get up and give you anything. How does Jesus respond? He says, I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. You see that this brother comes, and he doesn't just ask for help. He doesn't just ask for food. He actually gets very specific, and he asks for three loaves. And Jesus says, It's that kind of persistence and specific prayer that your prayers will actually be answered. We need to do the same thing when we come to the Father. So instead of, Lord, oh, please be gracious, where does that grace need to be applied in your area of life? Instead of coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, I need you to provide, well, what do you want him to provide? When do you want him to provide it? What specifically do you want him to provide? Instead of saying, Lord, please help. And there's appropriate times just to say help. But how do you want the Lord to help you? James 1.5 says, if any of you lacks what? Wisdom. Then ask God. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. Now, the third word that Paul uses here is request. He says request. He doesn't say demands. This is not naming and claiming. These are not coercions, they're not ultimatums. These are requests. And notice that it's request in the plural. The Lord wants us to come to him and talk to him about everything. Do you believe that? All of your worry, come to him. All of your confusion, come to him. All of your trouble, all of your desires, all of your discouragements, your joys, your triumphs, your confessions. He wants it all. Isn't that sweet that you have a God that is willing, ready, and able to listen to everything that is on your heart? And I want my kids to know they can come to Daddy for anything. They can come talk to me about anything at any time. And I want to improve on my availability to have that they, they know they have Daddy's ear. But I think sometimes when we think about God, we think He's just too busy. He's just too preoccupied. It's a big world, and there's a lot of people in the world, so maybe God is busy doing other things. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says he has infinite attention to spare for each one of us. He does not have to deal with us in the mass. Listen to this. You are as much alone with him as if you were the only being he had ever created. Peter says, Cast all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Take the worry out of your head. Put it in God's hand. And once it's there, don't try to arm wrestle God to get it back. Leave it there. Martin Luther said, pray and let God worry. Once you give it over to God, let it stay there Once you cast your care into his hand, know that it is in the best capable hands. What a sweet grace that God allows us to unload every single burden that weighs us down upon his broad shoulders. Listen to what John Calvin writes in his commentary on this verse. He said, for we are not made of iron so as not to be shaken by temptations, but this is our consolation. This is our solace to deposit or to disburden in the bosom of God everything that harasses us. Confidence, it is true, brings tranquility to our minds, but it is only in the event of our exercising ourselves in prayer. So offer up your prayers and your petitions and your requests to God and notice that the text says to do this to God. Don't first turn to social media. Put it all up on Twitter and Facebook. It's good to share your heart with your spouse and someone from the church, your neighbor, your your pastors. But you need to first go before the throne of grace. Look, your wife cares about you, but she doesn't know how many hairs are on your head. For those of you that are bald, maybe she does, but... For the most part, no idea... Wives, your husband can protect you, but they don't have the kind of muscles to guard you from the trouble that God can. Children, your parents love you unconditionally, but their love pales in comparison to God's love for you. So we must go to God. He's ready to receive us. He's ready to act on our behalf. There's nothing too small. There's nothing too big for him to deal with. In fact, you can take collectively all the prayer requests in all the world and all of time, put it in a big bag of prayer requests. That is nothing for God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, the child asks of the father whom he knows. Thus, the essence of Christian prayer is not general adoration, but definite, concrete petition, The right way to approach God is to stretch out our hands and ask of one who we know has the heart of a father. So, church, what are the specific needs in your life? What's been weighing you down? What's been burdening you? God says, Speak to me. Tell me all. I want to hear it. I want to help. So, we're to pray. In every situation, to pray with every kind of prayer. But notice also that our prayers must be offered up with gratitude. Look there at the text. Our prayers, petitions, requests, they all need to be accompanied with thanksgiving. And this right here is the real antidote for anxiety. Grasping that God is sovereign over the entire universe, and being the sovereign God of the universe, He is working out all things to work, they're working all for. Are good. See, it's easy to give thanks when we remember that he's promised in Philippians 4.19 to supply all of our needs according to the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. But listen, God's will for you, his word tells you explicitly that we are to give thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says this, In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And You say, well, why are we commanded to have a heart full of gratitude? And the answer is this, that thanksgiving is the right response to gracious gifts. You know, when we were young, we were instructed by our parents, make sure you thank grandma when she gives you a gift or make sure you thank auntie, whoever, when she gives you a gift. I really struggled with that because when I got socks at Christmas, that's not what I wanted. I wanted action figures. I wanted G.I. Joes. I didn't want socks. So I struggled to give thanks because I didn't want, I didn't feel thankful. But real Thanksgiving, it bubbles up from the heart. It's unavoidable to express your thanks when you realize the greatness of the gift. Turn with me to uh, Psalm 103. Psalm 103. Let me see if I can provide maybe some reasons for you to express your gratitude to God. Psalm 103 there in verse 1. Bless Yahweh, O oh my soul, and all that is in with, within me. Bless his holy name. Bless Yahweh, O oh my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all of your iniquities, who heals your diseases, who redeems your life from the pits, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Yahweh performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made his way known to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always contend with us and he will not keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, and he has not rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. For as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And as a father has compassion on his children, so Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our form, he remembers That we are but dust. Thanksgiving is the right response to God's gracious gifts. Your life, your salvation, your family, your food, your friends, your forgiveness, your enjoyments. I mean, really, when you sit down and think about it, what do you not have to be thankful for? Aren't you thankful for all the times that God answered prayers? with a no, because you were praying for the wrong things? Aren't you thankful that God was sending a prayer even before it came out of your mouth? Look, if you're spending more time grumbling than being thankful, then you're not going to pray. The reason why we give thanks is because gratitude guards against grumbling. It's extremely difficult for you to sit there and complain when you're convinced that God is constantly for you and you're constantly communicating with him, you can't sit and complain. So church, what do you have to be thankful for this morning? Are you thankful for everything God has done for you in the past? Are you thankful right now for what God is doing presently? And are you thankful for God's promises to hold you and keep you and preserve you in the future? Are you thanking him in those seasons of contentment and calmness, Are you only coming to him in urgent crisis? God's word says we are to be thankful and thankful at all times. And you say, well, that's helpful. But what was Paul thankful for most of all? When you read Paul's letters, he's just gushing with gratitude and thankfulness. It's just shooting out everywhere. Thankful for the churches, thankful for individual individual Christians, thankful for the conviction of the Holy Spirit, even thankful for challenges like the thorn in the flesh. There's so much that Paul is thankful for, but the supreme joy of Paul's heart, the thing that just elevated his joy and caused him to celebrate, was his gratitude for Christ. He says in 2 Corinthians 9.15, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And you read in the context there that Paul is talking about God's grace and his generosity, and he's talking about the gospel You see, the gift that goes beyond words is Jesus Christ, God's very Son, given as a gift to you. And listen to what Romans 8.32 says, He who indeed did not spare his own Son, but delivered him up over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so the attitude and the antidote to fight against anxiety is to feast your heart on God's gracious gift of His Son. The thought of God giving you His very best should make us burst forth in thanksgiving. When we realize that, when we meditate on that, that's when our worry turns into worship. That's when our anxiety turns into awe. That's when all of our problems turn into praise. So they can come, all the stresses and fears of life, whether they're recession, rejection, relational tension, when you think about Jesus, everything gets put into perspective. Our God doesn't want us, listen, to fret like orphans, fearful. He wants us to know that he's already given us the greatest gift in his son. Everything else is a given. And so respond with gratitude. So listen, we're to pray about everything. In every situation, every kind of prayer with thanksgiving, but we're also to pray in faith. We're to pray about every situation in our lives, but that doesn't necessarily make us people of prayer because being a person of prayer biblically is praying in faith. Jesus says in Matthew 21, verse 22, and all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. And his brother James reminds us in James 1, 6, but he must ask in faith, without doubting. And so when we come to God and we pray to God and request of God, we need to take God at his word. You see, God, he doesn't give these promises and, and make these guarantees and, and then back off kind of sheepishly because he can't come through. Everything that God has said in his word is a guarantee. Do you believe that, church? You know, this is why we pray in Jesus' name, We're not just closing the prayer. We're not just trying to complete the prayer. We're expressing faith when we say, in Jesus' name. Lord, do this for the building up and the building out of your kingdom, in Jesus' name, because we know that that is Christ's heart. Father, answer this prayer, if it's according to your will and for your own glory. God loves prayers like that. God, you are a covenant-keeping God, and you've promised to me in your word, now for your own namesake, accomplish this thing. God doesn't say, ooh, that's tough. He delights to hear prayers where we're calling on his name to accomplish his purposes. Church, do you have this kind of confidence? John 14, 13 says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. John 15, 7 says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 15, 16, you do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. 1 John chapter five and verse 14, this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request of, which we have asked from him. And here is where we say, Pastor, that sounds great, but if I'm just being honest, I lack that confidence. I don't pray believing fully, sort of, kind of, but not fully. How do I get that confidence? Well, let's start with this. You might not have that confidence because you might not be converted. If you know that the blood of Christ covers all of your sins, it is going to compel you to ask God with confidence. Do you trust that you've been fully forgiven? It is hard to pray and trust a God, a gracious God, a generous God, if he is not your God. Do you lack confidence because maybe all of your conversations with God are impersonal and just transactional? I had a buddy of mine recently who reached out to me, and he was sharing with me that, he went out to a mutual friend and asked for a favor. And he said that he was unwilling to do it. He was scared to do it. And it really boiled down to a fear that he just didn't have a close enough relationship with him. And so I told him, look, if you're only asking for favors and you're not really investing in relationship, I understand why. Relationships don't work like that. You just can't come and just ask and ask and ask and ask and not enjoy fellowship. So maybe that is why you lack confidence. You might lack confidence because you just don't believe God. You're not going to cast all your cares on him if you don't believe what the rest of the verse says. But if you believe in your heart, Christian, God cares for me. He's proven that over and over and over and over again. And when other people have let me down, God has never let me down that will build your confidence and your trust and your assurance that not only does he care for you, but he wants to hear your prayers and answer them according to his will and for his glory. Do you believe that this morning? You see, if you're full of faith, you'll be faithful to pray. If you lack faith, you will lapse in prayer. Now, what's the result of our prayer? Look at verse 7. And how verse seven begins. It begins with the word and, which latches on to verse six. There's an inseparable connection. So instead of having hearts and minds strangled with worry, there will be a serene, basking in God's peace. You see, when we replace our anxiety with prayer, the results, Paul says, are priceless. You have a powerful promise, and it is the peace of God. Prayer can produce peace, verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says here that the peace of God is greater than any human reasoning. The peace of God that Paul is talking about is not the same kind of peace that Webster's defines it as. If you look it up in Webster's, you'll see this, a state of tranquility or quiet, Now, MacArthur, in typical John MacArthur fashion, drops the truth bomb and helps us to realize that that is not a biblical definition. MacArthur says, The world defines peace as a sense of calm and tranquility and quietness and contentment and well-being that comes when everything is going well. And then he says this, But that definition, frankly, is shallow. A calm, tranquil feeling can be produced by lies, self-deception, unexpected good fortune, The absence of conflict and trouble, biofeedback, drugs, alcohol, even a good night's sleep. Such peace is fleeting and easily destroyed. It can be shattered by the arrival of conflict and trouble as well, by failure and doubt and fear and bitterness, anger, pride, difficulty, guilt, regret, sorrow, anxiety over circumstances beyond one's control, being disappointed or misled by others, making bad decisions. In short, by any perceived threat to one's security. So you say, well, if the world's definition is shallow and temporal, how, how do we get this deeper, longer, lasting, permanent peace? Where, where do we turn for inner calm and stillness of hearts? When our hearts are troubled, can we really have tranquility? And the answer to that is yes. But you can't buy this peace. so the world tries to do. You can't manufacture the peace. You can't get it through positive thinking. You can't get it through medicine or massage or meditation. You can't inherit it. You can't purchase it. You can't borrow it. It only comes to you directly from God. Now look there at verse 9. The peace that God gives is the same peace that he himself has Verse 9 says, These things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You see, the peace of God, which is only mentioned here in the New Testament, comes as a direct result of the God of peace. He's the only one that can cause you to be poised to give you a posture of confidence that you have a relationship with him and that he loves you and that you're secure and everything that he gives is sufficient for your needs. This is the kind of peace that the world can never offer. And Jesus said that himself, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you. So don't let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You see, listen, the peace that Jesus offers is un paralleled peace. It is new covenant peace. The, The Greek word here is "irene," But you guys are familiar with the word shalom. That's the Hebrew word for peace. It is covenantal. When Jews thought about shalom, they were just thinking about the, they weren't just thinking about the absence of war or political peace. They were also thinking about prosperity and health and spiritual wholeness and personal relational peace That was promised by God. Shalom peace in the Bible is holistic and all-encompassing peace. And when Paul uses this word here in Philippians, he's not just talking about the absence of anxiety, although it includes that. He's not merely referring to relational peace, even though he just talked about Iori and Syntyche and how we can have relational harmony. Now, Paul has something greater in mind. Listen to this. God's not just the source of peace. He is that. He's not just the bestower of peace. He's not just the supplier of peace. He's not just the sustainer of peace. But listen, God is the possessor of perfect peace. And because he's the possessor, he can help produce that peace in us. And so listen, when we have peace with God, we're at peace. We have peace of soul. We can have peace with one another. We can have peace with those inside and outside the church. So what God's shalom peace does, it it replaces all of our anxiety. It replaces it with the very presence of his peace. And it's his presence that provides the kind of peace that displaces those parched conditions where we feel anxious and worried. He replaces worryment with nourishment and Paul says this kind of peace that goes beyond human understanding, it goes beyond our, all, our mind. Anything that you could think of, all of us collectively, we can't even scratch the surface. All comprehension, it transcends all human intellect. And you think about the guy who's writing this right now and where he's at. That's why it passes all understanding. This guy should have zero peace in prison, about to be prosecuted, about to have his head chopped off. And he's not only preaching peace, but he's experiencing peace. And that's the kind of peace that a Christian can have. No matter what's going on, my heart is at rest. It is well with my soul. We want to be like that man who was on a damaged ship while waiting for rescue. He prayed, Lord, you do not slumber or sleep. I am exhausted. And there's no use for me staying awake. If you are, so I'm going to sleep. That makes no sense to human rationale, to human thinking. It makes perfect sense to the Christian who knows that God is in control of everything. I think that's why commentator William Hendrickson says this about the peace that Christians experience. He said, the peace that Christians experience is just the smile of God reflected in the soul of the believer. Well, not only is this peace greater than any human reasoning, but it also guards. Look at verse 7. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God's peace stands sentry, like a watchdog with cameras and, and the whole system protecting and guarding our very souls. And notice that it is both the emotions and the thoughts. And he guards our thoughts because he knows that our thoughts control our emotions. So when we're thinking, with faulty thinking, we become frantic. When we think false thoughts, we often become fearful. God's word says, no, God's peace will protect you. It will watch out for you. You think about Martha. Martha, Martha, you're worried about so many things. She's thinking about all the the preparations and making sure everything's right and the the food is cooked and and the accommodations are taken care of. and, And Jesus says, you're thinking about so many things. Your mind is disturbed. You're having a tug of war in your head. All you really need to do is just sit at my feet and enjoy me. Church, how often do we just get distracted? I ask people this frequently. I ask myself, are you praying? Are you enjoying fellowship with the Lord? And if we're being honest, a lot of times we really struggle to pray. And the reason why we struggle to pray is because of distraction. And the biggest distraction right now is probably in your pocket and in your purse. I encourage you to go read Tony Reiki's book, 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. He says in his book, we check our smartphone about 81,500 times each year. That's once every four minutes. He wrote that book five years ago. I have to think that that's increased. But Satan loves to distract us. And he does that with that little device in our hands. But Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, I've given you my word so that my peace may be in you. In the, word you will ha- in the world you will have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome The world. Listen, if you pray the way Paul teaches us to pray, your mind will be guarded from distraction. You will be guarded from foolishness in the heart. You'll be guarded from an anxious heart because prayer reorients our attention and it corrects our misguided priorities. And so in place of preoccupation with all that's going on in the world, you can have peace. Instead of having turmoil of heart, you can have tranquility. Instead of having chaos in your inner being, you can have calm. And notice just lastly, the peace of God is only found in Christ Jesus. I want to close with this. You know, growing up, my mom, she worked at Pacific Bell, the telephone company, old school. It's now, I think, AT&T. But I remember her sitting me down when I was a teenager and she said, uh, I've got something for you. And so she wrote a number down, and she said, I don't want you to lose this. This is, this is a code. So I took that code, and I said, well, what, what Mom, what is this? And she said, um, that will allow you to use any payphone. I know some of you guys don't know what a payphone is. This is before the cell phone. You can go to any public payphone, and you punch in this code, and you can get a hold of me anytime. And so, Dom, if you need a ride, if you need money for food, if you need protection, hey, if you just want to talk, any payphone, you just punch in the code, you can call me. And I thought, wow, that's pretty sweet. I don't have to carry around change to put in the in the machine. So I went around and told all my friends, hey, you need you need a call, you need a ride, you want to call your mom? I got you. And I go on the payphone and. And I remember one time I was talking to a buddy at my house with my mom there, and I said, yeah, man, I got this secret code. It's like. Top secret from Pacific Bow. I can make any call I want, wherever I want, whenever I want. And my mom overheard that and she said, Dom, that's not a secret code, that's a calling card. I, I paid for that. And every time you use it, I'm paying for that. Christian, what I want you to realize is that we have direct access to God anytime, any place to ask for anything. But that access came at a cost. Jesus laid down his life, poured out his precious blood, got up on a cross, a cross that you deserved, a cross that your sin deserved, and he took your place. He was the perfect substitute. He lived the perfect life. He died for your sins, and he did it. Why? Because he loved you because he wanted to establish the relationship to have the access to God at any time, and any place. Don't ever forget. Yes, prayer helps with anxiety. Prayer puts you at peace. But prayer gives you direct access and communion to the holy God who loved you and laid his life down for you. Let's pray. Well, oh, Father, we are so thankful for the truth of your word. We realize, Father, that it was because of Christ. He was the one pierced through for our transgression. He was the one that was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our peace fell upon him. And by his wounds, God, we are healed. And so the Apostle Paul can write in Ephesians 2.14 that he himself is our peace. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for the reality of the peace that you've provided. We recognize that we were at odds with you, enmity with you, enemies with you, but it is because of Christ. He has not only torn down that dividing wall, but he's forgiven us and welcomed us and adopted us and redeemed us and saved us for his glory and for our good. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you in this way, who doesn't have a saving relationship, whose heart is not at rest, who hasn't experienced peace and who has never experienced true and lasting peace, God, I pray that you would do the work of the Spirit in their heart. You would cause them to repent, to turn from their sin, and to embrace by faith the free gift of God that is offered from our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.